Good morning. Good to be with you this morning. I made it across the river this morning, came from Yanzid, and you've been graciously welcoming me to your community this morning, so that's good. Um, just want to get a bit of a feel here as far as what kind of a, a crowd we've got work this morning. When you, um, when you read your Bibles, and you don't have to answer to make me feel good, just be honest. Uh, when you read your Bibles, how many of you, when you're reading for devotions, tend to read mainly from the Old Testament? Yeah. How many of you tend to read mainly from the New Testament? And a few of you never read your Bible. That's okay. <clears throat> the pastor, I think, was one of them. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> the pastor never wants to answer wrong, so then you just don't answer, and then you won't get it wrong. Just point them out anyways. Uh, why is it that we tend to ignore three-quarters of our Bible? Or not we, but some other people do. Why do people tend to, the people that were voting beside you for the new mainly, uh, why is it that we tend to ignore three-quarters of our Bible? Any, any thoughts? I can't hear you. This is it. Yeah, it's hard to understand. Yeah, good. Good. Anyone else? Why is it that we tend to ignore it? Jesus is well, the answer to all Sunday school questions, and the answer in life is is Jesus. So, and there he is. He sits in the New Testament. So we just read the, the Jesus book, right? Okay, that's fine. That's fair. I'll, I'll take it. Why else? Anyone else? Maybe it's partly because of how God is portrayed in the two. Is that a problem for any of us? Or no, not really. See, in the New, in in the Old Testament, we see him as he's a God of judgment. He's a God of Wrath, he's a God of anger and rules, right? And, it's, and in the New Testament, he's a God of love, grace and love and mercy. And, and, uh, and in the Old Testament, he's just waiting for someone to mess up and then zap. And so you can zap, and, and, and it's like, well, but I like this. this is a more comfortable version of God, right? And so we tend to gravitate towards that. The other, one of the other reasons, I think, is marketing. <laughs> hey, hey, Dad, can I borrow the old car? No, it's the new one, right? And so you, you sort of marketed your way out of a book by calling it the old one, right? Now, if you call it the first testament, it's like, well, who wants the second one? I mean, that's like Canada in the Olympics, right? So I was like... I was, <laughs> But it's going to be first, right? So I want the first testament. Maybe they need to remark and rebrand the thing. Maybe that's part of the issue. Um, I think another reason is because we have Sunday school. No, let, let me say, let me clarify. One of the things that happens with Sunday school, with VBS, even with with um, children's churches, and that is we're given forty-five minutes. And so today the story is going to be about about Noah. And he builds this boat, and then he floats away happily, and then and he comes back. And so the lesson for today, we only have 45 minutes today, kids. The lesson today is when God asks you to do something really big, when you're 600 years old, make sure that you're in shapes that you can do that. Okay, that's the lesson today. And then you sort of leave that and stand separate from later on next Sunday. That's like, hey, kids, or adults, or whoever it is, we've got 45 minutes still. And we're going to talk about Jonah today. All right? And again, you want to float. All right? You want to float. And so the lesson today with Jonah is when God tells you to do something, you need to obey because if not, you get thrown into a whale. All right? And so the important lesson to learn to obey God, we're done. But how the story of Noah connects to Jonah, connects to Moses, who also was floating, right? Remember, he was a basket case. So he floated, even though he was thrown in the Nile. 
But, but you have all of these stories, and, and how in the world do you connect from Adam to Malachi, that great Italian prophet, and how do you, how do you figure this out? How does it make any sense? And, uh, and, and when you just get the stories in isolation, you don't see how they're connected to each other. When I graduated from Bible college way back before they had cars, uh, I went down to Belize. Laura and I went down to Belize to teach, and that's where I taught Old Testament. And suddenly I started to see how the Old Testament story is all connected together as one story. And I thought, why did I not get this in Bible college? Why didn't I figure it out? And I think I was distracted. I did find a wife. But uh, sometimes you don't learn stuff until you actually start teaching it. And, uh, and, as I, and as the stories connected together for me and the lights came on, uh, I started to love reading all of the stories of the Old Testament because it made sense where they fit. And so my goal this morning with, for you and with you is to walk through that story of the Old Testament to try to make sense of it. And I'm, and I'm convinced that as we see how all of the little stories tie together into the big story, that the big little stories begin to make a lot more sense. And so we're going to do this a little interactive. You're going to work with me. A warning, fair warning, you're going to learn almost nothing new this morning. We're going to take stories that you already know. We're going to connect them together in a way that hopefully help you to understand how the big story works. Ready? We're going to run. We've only got 35 minutes to go through the whole thing. Next week, he says we're going to be doing an intensive or extensive. We're only doing it in 10 hours. I still call, I still call that one my flyby course. We're in 10 hours. We do the whole thing. But, uh, but we'll take a look at it a little bit more this next weekend. But starting this morning, who is the first character of the Old Testament? Does anybody know that? Oh, that's good. That's good. I was a setup. I thought someone's going to say Adam and I'm going to just burn them. But no, it's God. All right. It's God. It all begins with God. And without God, there is nothing. And so we have to start our story with God. It's working. And um, he's, work, he's working. All right. And so we begin with God. Uh, I shouldn't really have a box around there because there is no box big enough for God. All right, so I need to change that yet. But, but uh, with God, and he creates first people. The first people that God creates are Adam and Eve. Very good. Adam and Eve. Uh, and so God places Adam and Eve in this garden, and everything is perfect. Adam didn't have a mother-in-law. Oh, I had a wonderful mother-in-law. But anyways, um, Adam, everything is perfect in the garden. God says, just enjoy the produce of the garden, and everything is fine. And then they sinned. What was their temptation to sin? What was it caused by? They wanted to be like God. Why is it such a temptation to be like God? You know, I find my relatives, by the way, all over the Old Testament. <laughs> Wanting to be like God means that you don't need God. And almost all of our stresses in life come from being out of control. If I could only, boom, end the pandemic, boom, fix grandma's broken leg, boom, Cancer's gone. Boom. The house isn't burnt. Boom. I didn't fail, of course. What all the, if we could only fix all of these things ourselves, but, but all of our stresses come in being out of control and needing God, needing to rely on God. But that's how God designed it. And Adam and Eve didn't want it, nor do I, and probably nor do some of you. And so he, so he grabs for the fruit. He does the only thing that he was, pre not, that he was prevented from doing. And so he does this. But we know that, that in the Old Testament, right? In the Old Testament, God's waiting for somebody, and then he goes zap, right? And so what does God do to Adam? Adam and Eve sin, and so God 
he removes them from the garden, but he doesn't kill them on that day, right? On that day, you will die. On that day, they didn't die. That's this, brace yourself, this is the first story in the Bible, and it's the first story of God's grace. He removes them from the garden, there will be consequences, but he doesn't give up on them, and in fact, what's incredible is that God pursues them. He doesn't give up on them, he pursues them. And wherever we are at and whatever it is that we're doing in life and we do dumb things too and we are selfish and we want to be like God and yet God doesn't write us off and he continues to pursue us. He says to them, be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth. Some of you thought probably that the Great Commission shows up first in Acts chapter 28 or maybe in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. It shows up in Genesis chapter 1. God's concern for the whole earth begins with be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth and so they have kids first kids names are what are their kids names Cain and Abel and Seth gotta remember Seth because we're actually all descendants of Seth because that's where Lana Noel comes from but uh and so you get the next story of the Bible and it's Cain goes and Cain's his brother so he's no longer able to live and so you got murder and what does God do to murder in the Old Testament? You know how it works. In the Old Testament, it's an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life for life. He kills his brother. So what does God do to Cain? He puts a mark on him so that he won't be killed. He becomes a wanderer. But God spares his life, actually. Second story of the Old Testament. Second story of God's grace. Hope you're starting to change some of your preconceived ideas about the God of the old and the God of the new. It's the same God. We get to chapter 6 in Genesis and it says we've gone from perfect earth, perfect creation, to every inclination of the thoughts of man were only evil all the time. That's three inclusives in one verse. Every inclination of the thoughts of man, only evil all the time. And so what does God do? He does punish. God is a just God. He is a holy God. And he punishes, except that he spares one man in his family. Name is Noah. And Noah was spared because he was perfect, correct? No, he wasn't. How's he described? Noah was a... Noah was a... How's he described? He's a... What kind of a man? And Noah was a righteous man. Thank you. He wasn't perfect. He was righteous. Well, what's the difference between righteous and perfect? Noah... Any of you perfect? No. One. No, there's no hands. Uh, any of you righteous? How so? How do you become righteous if you're not perfect? There's this verse in the New Testament that says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And when you're cleansed from all unrighteousness, you are declared. So Noah wasn't perfect, but he was forgiven. And because that God extends grace to Noah, when Noah comes off the boat, God says to him, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. There it is. Great commission, second time. And so Noah comes off. We realize that the sin problem has not been solved. In fact, he's just barely off the boat, and there in his drunken stupor, he's lying. Well, we won't. But anyways, sin hasn't been solved. All right? There's still the sin nature. God starts over, but he starts with now a, a fallen man, not with a perfect man, like at creation. 
And, uh, and he says to Noah, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And so he's fruitful and multiplies, but he, they, people forget to fill the earth. And instead of filling the earth, they say, hey, let's, let's what? Let's, let's gather in Winkler, <laughs> right? <laughs> and let's all gather in one spot and let's build a tower. Let's make a city. And let's, the other thing that it says is let's make a, a name for ourselves, and there's my relatives showing up again. And hopefully you're not like me. I don't know. Some of you, any of you ever care about what other people think about you? I'm the only sick dog in the building. Eh? Okay. The rest of you are so self-righteous, you can't even put up your hand for that. Anyways, uh, but um, so uh, they want to make a name. Who are we supposed to be making a name for, incidentally? God. That's my relatives one more time. And so God decides to de to, so it says, let's, let's, let's build a city so that we won't be scattered. Four verses later. And the Lord scattered them. How does he does it, do it? By creating all of the languages now besides low German. All right? Well, we don't actually know what language they spoke before this. All that we do know is, is uh, they're speaking all these different languages so that now when I, when, when the, there's people speaking Russian, it's like, and we're playing hockey against them, it's like, boo, Russia, and go Canada, eh? And then it's, and then the Swedes, and then the Finnish, and then the Germans, and the French, and it's always boo to you guys, and cause we're a team, and, and we have the problem that's set up in our world today, and that is we got one people group pitted against another group, people group, and often it's connected to culture and language. Is that problem ever solved in the Old Testament or in the New Testament or anywhere that the problems between languages is sort of done away with? You're allowed to cheat and use the New Testament. It's not cheating. It's one book. It solves the Old Testament problem in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost. It says, and there was God-fearing Jews from, from every nation gathered in Jerusalem. And when the Holy Spirit comes, they say, how is it that we all hear the word of God in our own language? And the Holy Spirit undoes the results of Babel. And so that when I go to any country in the world and they're speaking another language, and me, people have accused me of being an extrovert, whatever those things are. But, but when I'm sitting in a restaurant and I see somebody over there and there's a family that come in and they all bow their head before a meal, I want to go over there and visit with them because I think we're related. We've got the same father. And there's a unity that happens. And you can go to a church wherever they speak a language that you don't know and you sit there in church worshiping the same God and you say, I just felt so at home even though I didn't understand a word. That's because it's the, it's the same Holy Spirit. Out of all those languages and all of that division that happens, God chooses one group of people to be his, for instance, to be his example to the whole world as to what it looks like to be my people and for me to be their God. And does anybody know what language they speak? Hebrew. So they're known as, in the Old Testament, this group of people, this, for instance, to the world, is known as the Hebrews. They're also known as the Jews. They're also known as the Israelites or the descendants of Abram and, specifically, Abram and his wife, Sarah. All right? And they're going to be an example to the world as to what it looks like to be God's people and for him to be their God and him to be their only God. And he promises them three things. He makes a covenant promise with Abraham. He promises them three things. The first thing he says is, I promise you the land. He, there's going to be a promised land. The second thing is, 
You have descendants like the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore. And the third thing is, you're going to be a blessing. In fact, the whole earth is going to be blessed through you. Which begs the question today, if I've got a faith in the same God of Abraham and I'm part of those people, I wake up every morning and I say, so God, who do you want to bless through me today? And at the end of the day, I stop and I fill out my report card and I ask, so did I bless people today? Was I the blessing God called his people to be? So Abram has descendants. And his first son's name is, the only son's name, through Sarah was Isaac. All right. And God promises Isaac three things and makes a covenant promise to them. Anyone want to guess what three things he promises to Isaac? You can do this. Land, descendants, and that they would be a blessing. The same thing is promised to Isaac. Isaac marries Rebekah. They have two sons. These are, by the way, the first two Mennonite twins. It's Jacob and Harry Esau. Okay, they weren't Mennonites. That's a lot later. But uh, it's, it, it works if you call him Harry Esau, because it doesn't work to say Harry and Jacob Esau. It's like, that's just messed up. So, uh, but it's Jacob and Harry, Jacob, Harry and Jacob and Esau. <laughs> that's the two guys. All right. And out of those, he chooses Jacob and he makes a covenant with Jacob. He's the younger brother, but he gets the blessing and he gets the birthright. And in the blessing, there's three things. Anyone want to guess by now what these things are confidently? Land, descendants, and that you will be a blessing. And so they have Jacob and he marries two wives, Leah and Rachel, and has these two combines or concubines or whatever they are. Uh, Leah, there's Bilhah and whatever. And, and he has how many sons does Jacob have? Twelve, and even dozen. Uh, I often give a little sidebar to introduce because because. Um, I, d I didn't get the full introduction, but I, my wife comes from a family of 12. Uh, who is the favorite of Jacob's sons? Joseph. Does it, what number was he in the birth order of the 12? Does anyone know? 11th. He was number 11. My wife comes from a family of 12 kids. Anyone want to guess what number she is? Well, of course. Why wouldn't I marry the favorite? I married number 11. Anyways, that's got nothing to do with Old Testament story. Let's continue on with this. Out of the, I pick up Joseph because he is the reason why the people end up, this is now, we get to the end of Genesis. We're going to go faster yet. But we get to the end of Genesis, it's all introduction to the, to the story of the people that God's going to work with, right? And Joseph, because of him, they end, because of God, but God uses Joseph to bring them into the land. And now they are in, 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 down into Egypt. And now they're in Egypt and they're there for 430 years. After 430 years, a pharaoh comes, and there are a bunch of plagues. Not just one, like we're experiencing, ten. And each time, God uses the plagues to remind the people of who he is. And then, who is it that's going to lead them out of the land? Technically, it's God. But God uses people. And God uses Moses to lead the people out of the land. And they get to Mount Sinai, and God gives the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments are what you're supposed to do to be saved, correct? No, don't agree. They already are saved. Forty days, three months earlier, they were saved. The day of their salvation had nothing to do with obeying the law. The day of their salvation had everything to do with 
starts the letter F. It's faith. Remember back when they were in Egypt? The blood on the door? Yeah, I don't believe that either. And it's like, well, then your son dies. And the blood was the sign. And because of their faith, God saved them. When you get to the Ten Commandments at the, at the Mount Sinai, why are those things given? They're to let us know what saved people should look like. The Ten Commandments don't save us. The Ten Commandments describe what saved people look like. And all of the commandments have a lot to do with loving God, the first four, and loving your neighbor, the last six. All right? Uh, the people, while he's up on the mountain, the people go and they build a golden calf. Where did they get that idea from? Well, that's how the pagans worshipped in Egypt, and now they're doing this. And God is going to strike them dead. And he's about to strike them dead, and we get to Exodus chapter 34. And in Exodus 34, we got a picture painted of God in verse 6. He passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate, this is Old Testament, folks, I'm not reading New Testament stuff here. Compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness and sin. That phrase is going to be repeated about 10 times in the Old Testament at different places by different people. Gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in kindness. And a God who relents or changes his mind about punishments as we confess. But it doesn't end there. God is a gracious God, but you continue on and says, yet he doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. And that's actually true today, too. And that is, if I choose to live a life of sin, you can probably watch three and four generations down and you're going to see the effects of that because of the way that I live. Not that they're sentenced to it, but I'm setting a pattern that will be followed for, for probably four generations later. The consequences. Well, the people get to the land. Who's going to lead them into the promised land? This is after 40 years in the wilderness. Who's going to lead them into the promised land? Joshua. No, God will. But God uses Joshua. And they're going to enter the land. They're going to settle. And God says, enjoy the land. Enjoy the produce of the land. It's yours. It's my gift to you. It was in the covenant promise. There's the land. And they settle in the land. And then we get to what I find is one of the most disturbing verses in the entire Bible. It's in Judges 2 verse 10. If you've got your Bible, look at it. Judges 2 verse 10. After that whole... Oh, I'm going to let you turn to it. This is Old Testament. These are brand new pages here you've never used before in the Bible, but you're going to, it's going to take a little time to find it. Okay, Judges 2, verse 10. All right? It talks about that generation. So, so they moved into the land. They've conquered all of the nations in there, and they've given the whole land. And it says, after that generation died, another generation grew up that, didn't, that knew neither the Lord nor what he'd done for Israel. And I look at that verse, and I say, How? How could you, after one generation, you just moved into the land, God's given you the land, and their kids have no idea what happened. And there's a reason for that. It's called, they didn't tell their kids. They didn't do Sunday school. They didn't do children's church. They didn't do Bible camp. They just, now that we're in the land, now it's getting the faster sports car, building the bigger house, 
and, and let's just enjoy the fruit. But they didn't pass it on. That is why us as parents are reading Bible stories to our kids. And that's why we have children's church, Sunday school, and Bible camps. And it's actually it's why I have a job. My job at SBC is to pass it on to the next generation. Because I'm gone in another, we don't know. Maybe it's tomorrow. And when I'm gone, if the generation doesn't know, then my if the next generation doesn't know, then my generation failed. We've got to pass it on or we're going to look like them. And what does it say in the very next verse? Verse 11. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And they served the Baals. And we end up with 12 judges. Six extended stories of people doing evil in the eyes of the Lord. And then God sells them into the hands of the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Philistines, the Mennonites. The Mennonites weren't there, but, but the surrounding nations. And then what do they do? They do the same thing that we do when we get into trouble. When we're in trouble, then you cry out to God for help. And that's what they did. And God sends a deliverer or a judge. And he delivers them. And it says, and then the land had peace for 20 years, for 40 years, for a period of time. And it says, and then they again did evil. And they just keep on repeating and repeating and repeating and drifting from God. And then God bails them out. And then they drift again. And then cry out to God for help. And they... Until you get to the first judge is Othniel. The last judge in the book is Samson. What a horrible story. You get a terrorist attacked is your last story. That's, that's how far they've drifted. And the guy goes and he, he, he kills more people when he kills himself than he did the whole time that he was alive. And you've got 9-11. You've got, you got a terrorist attack. And uh, you get to the very last verse in the book of Judges. And it's the report card of how life has gone for the last 12 generations. And it says, in those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes, or as he saw fit. And I fear that North America has ended up there. Like, you do, you do whatever you do, and, and who am I to judge? Because that's up to you, and, and that's, if that's right for you, and, and you can believe whatever you believe in. But whatever you do, just don't be so arrogant that you think that, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but, but through him. That's, like, that's, that's your way, but, but there's lots of different ways, and, and we need to be more accepting and tolerant. Because every way is equal today. That's where we've come to. And what do the people do? They want a leader. And they cry out for a king. They say, we want a king to lead us like all the other nations. And God says, ah, that's exactly what I was hoping you would say. You're supposed to look like everybody else. Not. They were supposed to be of all of the people. They were supposed to be an example of what it looks like to be following God, not following a human king. But God honors their request. And he asked Samuel, the last judge, to anoint a king, and he anoints a king, and God says to him, as long as the king does what the prophet says, because the prophet is actually God's spokesperson, as long as the king is doing whatever the prophet says, it'll go well with you. But if not, I will be a God of justice, and you will, you will be punished. You will be sent into exile. And so Samuel anoints the first king. The first king's name is Saul. First king's name is Saul. And, uh, and he was a good king for six days. Then he goes and offers the offering that actually is a priest's, a Levite's job, not a Benjaminite's job. And he was told to wait for seven days. Oh, my relatives show up one more time. 
Are, am I the only guy in the building that has a hard time waiting for God? And we want to run ahead of his plan. And Saul runs ahead of the plan and the consequences are given to him right that day. And that is, I've rejected you as king and I've found and I'm going to choose another man. And, and who's, who's going to replace Saul as king? David. And David is known as a, a man after God's own heart. Oh, to have that as an epitaph on my tombstone when I'm gone. Not he had the fastest cell phone all the time. Or that he had, he taught this many students. Or that he had this kind of a car or that kind of a business. Just put on there, a man after God's own heart. And so God makes a covenant with David and he says to him, never will you fail to have a descendant on the throne of Israel forever. Which is a fairly long time. Which begs the question, who is on the throne out there in Israel today? And is that still a descendant of David? Did, was that promise ever kept? But we'll just park that one for now. And we're just going to see whether or not he had a son. And he had a son on the throne. David's son's name is Solomon. And Solomon was known for three things that all start with the letter W. What are they? Women or wives. He has 700 wives, 300 combines. This guy's a big time farmer, right? Eh? Uh, so women or wives. Wisdom and wealth. How do governments get wealth? Taxes. And he taxed the people to death, said he could build his big building projects because he was drifting from the heart of worship and he thought it was all about me. By marrying 700 wives, he's marrying foreign wives to make alliances with other nations. And what happens when you marry foreign wives that don't worship your God is you begin to worship their gods. And so God tells him that when he dies, his kingdom is going to be ripped away from his son and 10 tribes are going to follow somebody else. And when he dies, his son Rehoboam is ruling down south in Judah, but up north it's Jeroboam which was an army commander, and even though their names sound similar, it was not Solomon's son. And Jeroboam, the first thing that he does up north is he sets up golden calves. Where did that come from? Sinai and pagan worship in Egypt. And he sets up golden calves on Dan up at north and at Bethel, and he says, you don't need to go down to Jerusalem to worship God. You can worship right here because these represent the God that brought us out of Egypt. And every single king up north is described as, and he walked in the ways of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and the sins that he caused Israel to commit. Next weekend when we're having this course, you're going to read 19 verses, and they will all repeat it, but I'm going to force you to read them all because I want you to see it. It's repetition. They're all walking in the ways of Jeroboam who set up the golden calves. They never learned from it. And then God says, oh, he's a God of grace. How long would you wait, by the way, if you were God? before you deal with the sin problem of uh, continuing to worship the foreign gods? Three, maybe. That would be pretty good. Four, maybe seven. Seven's a really biblical number. Nineteen kings God waits for. Every one of them described as walking the ways of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, the sins he caused Israel to commit. And then God brings the Assyrians and he punishes northern Israel for their sin. And that's the end of northern Israel, the ten tribes. They're, they're finished. They bring in other people, they intermarry, they become unclean Samaritans. And, but Israel, northern Israel as a nation is done. So we go back, meanwhile, back at the ranch, we got Judah, which was Solomon's son. 
Solomon's son is on the throne, and his son's name is Rehoboam. The first thing that Rehoboam does is, it says that he built high places to worship foreign gods on every high hill and under every spreading tree. Idol worship during Solomon's son's time, because thanks to his wives, idol worship is rampant. All of the kings after Rehoboam are described in one of two ways. Either it says they did what was evil in the Lord's sight, or it says they did what was right, but they didn't remove those high places. Remember in Psalm 121, I lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? Which of those high places is the right one to worship our God? And the answer is, you worship the God that made the mountains. Right? And so these kings down south, there's 20 of them. And while the kings down south are ruling, while the kings up north were ruling, you end up with all of the prophets that are listed up there on the screen. And they're all calling out, and because the prophets see what we don't see in that is they see that God will deal with sin. And you're going to be sent into exile. And the reason why they tell you you're going into exile is like, oh, I was kind of wondering how he'd punish us. It's because they're begging you to turn from your sin because they know there's consequences. And there is a righteous God, God that we will face. In the year 586, God sends the Babylonians and they take Israel, Judah, into exile for 70 years. But they're allowed to return. Why do they get to return and Israel didn't? There was a promise made to David. Never will you fail to have a descendant on the throne of Israel. And so Solomon's son and that line, every king down south was a relative of David. But they go into, into exile in Babylon. When they come back, they do come back, but it's first the Medes that are in charge, and then the Persians are in charge, and then the Greeks, Alexander the Greek destroys them, and then the Romans take over, and so when you get to the beginning of the New Testament, they're not in charge of their own selves. The Romans are. Which, which begs the question, whatever happened to that promise made to David, never will you fail to have a descendant on the throne of Israel. And then you get into Matthew chapter 1. And you get this lineage of this little baby that's born. And what's really, really important, the Christmas story, Luke chapter 2. And Joseph went to Bethlehem to be asked because he was of the house and line of David. And now, as Paul Harvey would say, you know the rest of the story. Never will you fail to have a descendant. And when Jesus is put on the cross, on the cross is a sign King of the Jews, forever and ever, hallelujah, right? Yeah, we don't sing this song. But he's King of kings and Lord of lords. And he's the answer to a promise that was made a thousand years earlier to David. And a thousand years earlier to Abram. And that is, through your seed, the whole earth is going to be blessed. So what do we learn this morning? Well, God is a faithful God. God is faithful. And he has called us to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's called mission. He's also called us to be a blessing. He's gracious and compassionate, but he is also just, and sin does get paid for. In the Old Testament, all the way through, it was something dies, was an animal. And in the New Testament, it's still the same, except that what dies is 
his son. He is so holy and cannot tolerate sin. Something will die, but he is so loving that he pays it. And he sends his son to die for us. And so we have seen God's faithfulness throughout the Old Testament. And every time that they got into trouble, the flood, God wants to call them back to him. The exile, God wants to call the people back to him. Moses, during the plagues, God was wanting to let the people know who God was. And today, we live in an age where our whole world is talking about another plague. And I am convinced that God, through this time too, is inviting and calling us all back to him. So that we can fulfill the mission he called his people to do. For his glory. Thank you.